Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and banter. Gabe Dowry. Hello. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about late 19th century magicians driven by love and death. It's The Prestige versus The Illusionist. Let the magic show begin. So, Gabe, let's... uh, You like that? Yes, it was fantastic. Great. (laughs) Magical, truly. (laughs) Like a magician. Like a magician. So, let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. So, on the 20th of October, 2006, The Prestige was released. Here's the IMDb synopsis. After a tragic accident, two stage magicians engage in a battle to create the ultimate illusion while sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. So, Gabe, did you originally catch The Prestige when it was released at the cinema? And what was that experience like? I think I did. In fact, I think this might have been a movie I saw twice at the cinema, which, as I get older, is an increasingly rare occurrence. And I've probably watched it a whole bunch of times on Blu-ray since. And I do enjoy this film. What about you? Yeah, I caught this one, I think, at a art house cinema, the one I mentioned before in Randwick in Sydney, the Art Deco style. It's kind of like half art house, half mainstream, the Randwick Ritz. And I can't recall why I saw it. I think it was a convincing trailer. And I think because I really enjoyed Memento and Insomnia by Christopher Nolan, I was drawn to it. And having seen Batman, I think, what, one year previously? Was Batman 2003 or 2005? Uh, 2005. Okay. So, one year previously. Then I was just keen to see him kind of go back to doing something that was less of a typical genre film. But obviously, having seen him cut his teeth on the big budget of Batman Begins, I was keen to see what he'd do next. And he I being ju- Nolan, right? He being Nolan, yeah, yeah. But this was pre the cult of Nolan, the sort of- Yeah. This was the burgeoning of that uh, metamorphosis. Well, I think there were two cults of Nolan. There were those people that actually discovered following his indie black and white film. That's a very, very small group of fans. Then there was those that discovered Memento, which was much bigger- and insomnia. Then there was those that discovered Batman Begins, but I think the <laughs> are you just Christian- going through his filmography? No, but <laughs> the, but the Great. fan base, the rabid fans grew with some proclaiming that they actually were there for the very start, right? And most people falsely claim that they were there for the rise of Christopher Nolan from Memento onwards, but the true fans pre the Dark Knight in 2008 pre-Memento in, what, 2000, were the ones that somehow, miraculously, whether they lied or not is unclear, claimed to have seen following that really tiny, obscure indie film he did on the budget of a oily rag. In a days when it was like pre-YouTube, pre-streaming, you would have had to have had a film school basically buy it for their collection on VHS or something. So this was before the Rabbit fans behind The Dark Knight. But I was just curious to see what he'd do because I really enjoyed Insomnia. So I was like, okay, this looks like being like Insomnia, a little bit indie, a little bit mainstream. Enjoyed it at the time. Didn't walk away thinking it was particularly amazing. 
just found it a pleasant experience, which sounds like I'm being critical, but I actually think I appreciate it more, which we'll get into on re-watching it later on down the track, like on um, DVD. Right. Look, I'd say I probably like this movie more than you, but God, what I wouldn't give for a pleasant experience at the cinema these days. Just to sit back, not be annoyed with people around you, be entertained like the good old days. With maybe a genre film that's not couched in some sort of superhero mythology based on some franchise IP board game. Just a simple tale about a pair of magicians. Well, this actually was based in IP, which we'll get to. But yes, <laughs> not like the same sort of intellectual property of something like, yeah, a Marvel or DC comic. All right, let's jump to The Illusionist. So a little earlier, I mix up the order for Fun and Games tonight. A little earlier. Not for Australia. The Illusionist came out second in Australia. Ah, that explains it, because I did think that in Australia The Illusionist came out after The Prestige. That makes sense. So, it was released earlier in the US on the 1st of September 2006, and actually even earlier again if you count Sundance in the same year. And here's the IMDb synopsis for The Illusionist. In turn of the century Vienna, a magician uses his abilities to secure the love of a woman above his social standing. So, mate, talk me through when and how you first watched The Illusionist. I have no recollection of having seen this movie before I watched this movie for this podcast, although I must have seen it because there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that I was like, wow, that wall sure feels memorable. Oh, like I remember that wall covered in antlers or something, but I don't know. I'm drawing a huge blank. It mustn't have left much of an impression on me, although I'm sure I saw it. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You? Yeah, I think I originally saw it myself on DVD. One of those films I sort of spotted on the shelf, being a huge fan of Ed Norton at Blockbuster. I can't recall being released at the cinema at all. Obviously, it was, but I assume basically The Prestige ate its lunch as being the first late 19th century <laughs> magician film off the rank. And this must have been only about two months after in Australia. I recall the really cool movie poster, which we'll also circle back to, but yeah, I can't recall anything about this film, and if I had seen it on DVD, nothing stuck. But I did really enjoy watching it in preparation for this pod. Yeah, we'll get to it in our review, but um, I'm actually surprised it didn't leave a message, because there's so much about this film that I do like. It's amazing how somehow, for whatever rhyme or reason, and maybe it was just being in the shadow of the prestige... There just wasn't any legacy left in my memory at all. Maybe we should jump into a review of these films. But before we do that, let's just dive into um, a bit of Hollywood history behind these two flicks. So we often ask the question, how is this? Why is this so? How do we end up with these twin movies at the same point in time from Hollywood? In this case, it appears that it wasn't really a case of two studios racing each other. It wasn't that. They're both based on intellectual property, literature, in fact, So, The Prestige is based on a 1995 novel of the same name by the author Christopher Priest. And The Illusionist is based on a collection of short stories, particularly in one called, uh, I think it was called The Eisenheim Illusion or something like that. I've just lost it for a moment. It's called that. Eisenheim The Illusionist. That's what I said. That's it. Well done. (laughs) By Stephen Milhauser from his 1990 short story. So, yes, there clearly was a race to make each of these, but I think it was just a case of serendipity or bad luck, as the case may be, that they were both in the works for a while. It looks like Nolan was actually attached 
from around the early 2000s onwards, but took probably about five years before it got, actually got up. And the illusionist was sort of gestating sideways without any apparent awareness of this film being made either. So let's jump to a review of these movies. So I guess we'll start with Prestige, mate. Did you like it? And what worked for you about this film? I really like this movie. And I get the feeling that I like this movie a lot more than you like this movie. Would I be correct? Yeah, you are. But you walk me through everything (laughs) you like about it and I'll circle back to what doesn't work for me. Okay, fair, fair. I guess I like the plot, story, characters, themes, photography, music, production design. Oh, hang on. Uh, I mean, all those elements that, when they come together, make a movie. I guess I would say that I like all the elements that come together to make a movie. Performances. Yeah, I like a lot of this. For me, probably this is my favourite Christopher Nolan movie. Whoa, that's a huge call. Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean- You think this is your favourite Christopher Nolan movie of all the movies he's made in his entire filmography? Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm not a huge Nolan acolyte. Like, I think he's an incredibly talented filmmaker and it's great to see someone who can still kind of get the sort of budgets that he can get for what are essentially original, the sort of movies you make now, original movies, you know, not including the the Batman trilogy that he made. But yeah, I mean, I like the prestige most because it actually probably seems like his most personal- movie and I like that it's a story about its sort of obsession. You could read it as a sort of analogous to filmmaking. I like the way that it sort of all unfolds. <laughs> I like that it's a incredibly rewatchable movie because I swear no matter how many times I've seen this movie, I always forget. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's right. He's reading the diary and then the other guy's reading that Yeah, so I just really enjoy this. I love the setting. I love magicians, and I like that it becomes some wackadoodle sci-fi thing. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So, let's start with you think it's actually a personal film to him, one of his most personal films. So, what, do you mean his obsession with detail? No, I mean, I think, well, look, I think Christopher Nolan's films come across as all quite cold and impersonal. So, saying it's the most personal film to him is not like in comparison to some sort of like – Al Morvador, Love and Glory, or whatever his new semi-autobiographical movie is or whatever, you know, to call a Christopher Nolan movie personal, I don't know. But, yeah, I think the idea about how far these guys will go, their obsessiveness, and then I think the way it unfolds and the way that Christopher Nolan's movies are often kind of like these, I don't know, um, uh, how would you describe it? Like a clockworky, intricate layer thing. I don't know. What's a better description than that? I think you're right, though, using the metaphor of a clock. Like, I agree that they're carefully calibrated films and very tightly put together, like the cogs in a clock. They're very calculated. I mean, some would actually accuse Christopher Nolan of actually being cold with his films because he's too clinical in the way he manufactures them, opposed to being much more organic or creative. I disagree with that. I think that's a kind of unsophisticated way to critique his work, just because someone considers their craft in great detail and plan it out years in advance. That, to me, doesn't take away from the spontaneity of the finished product or its creativity. I think people who, who subscribe to ideas of finding dialogue on set or whatever that's fine. I think it's like just an alternative way. One isn't better than the other. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of space for me to enjoy both the Christopher Nolan movie and Echimama Tambien or whatever. Sort or Judd Apatow. Yeah, exactly. Also, uh, that's Al Movador's Pain and Glory. I should. I misspoke earlier. That's the name of his 
movie. Anyway, as we go, on we go. On we go. That's right. But no, like, I just really like the way it's kind of constructed and the way it unfolds and, yeah, the way it is sort of, like, analogous to filmmaking. It's obviously part of his process, you know, the whole idea of the prestige and a screenplay that reveals itself. For me, it just works. Yeah, what are the three elements of the prestige, the trick? Because he actually has mentioned himself that he tried to structure the screenplay with his brother, Jonathan, to reflect that, which is quite challenging. But can you remind me what the elements are that make the prestige? I can. Are you just searching (laughs) Wikipedia now as we speak during our live recording? (laughs) Of course I'm not. What search term would you use? um, I was going to say it's like the river and the flop, but that's fucking poker. (laughs) Actually, while you're looking up that, I will um, let me speak to some other elements you mentioned. I agree, you know, the film looks fantastic from a cinematography point of view. In fact, this film was nominated for an Oscar, deservingly so, I think. It looks spectacular. I think it's interesting that he has chosen this particular subject matter about obsession, and I actually think he is very much an obsessed filmmaker. I think his obsession with detail is entirely reflected in both characters in this film. This film, I can see what you're saying. It could be his most personal work because the characters may reflect the attributes of him and the themes of the film. The screenplay is written like a magic trick and reflects all the troubles of making a film, the magic of creating something, the artifice of cinema, and basically fooling the audience, luring the audience in with the trick of cinema to believe a story. I think he casts very well. He's always cast well. And I think the actors he's chosen for this film are, on the whole, fantastic choices. There's some surprise ones like... I'm pretty amazed how Piper Perabo got a Guernsey in this film. That's a bit odd to me. She just seems like an odd fit for the rest of the cast. But he chooses interesting subject matter. He chooses great cast to bring that subject matter alive with reasonably complex characters. I think there's some sort of theory, isn't there, that in every Christopher Nolan film they have – is it – daddy issues and mother issues that someone's mother or father has passed away and he's a very narrow perception of female characters and their role in relation to men. Is that right? I think I've read essays about that before. The last part, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a well-written female character in a Christopher Nolan movie, certainly not to the extent that he would write the male characters with you know, like what's probably the best written female character in one of his movies? Catwoman. I Ellen can't really think Page of in Inception. I don't know. No, she actually has no autonomy at all. She's asking questions right. the okay. entire time as the audience surrogate. Whereas, at least Maybe for example, Catwoman- Rebecca Hall in this, but then she just exists to kind of hang herself or whatever. Yeah, or that's spoilers. right. Yeah. So, look, I would say that Nolan's movies actually have a really narrow focus. You know, we said this is about obsession and stuff, but really, kind of all of his movies are about. Men who take their obsession to such an extent that they drive away the women in their lives. <laughs> like, yeah, I think it's a really he's a jerk succinct summary. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I guess insomnia is not, although that's about obsession. But you know, like the Prestige, Inception, Marianne Cotillard has gone and killed herself. Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey kind of sacrifices his entire personal relationships to 
fly into the back of a bookshelf or whatever. I think it's like a real common theme in Nolan's movies and that's all, it's all quite done in kind of detached way, isn't it? You're right. And I guess this is both my frustration with Nolan and directors like him, but also what I like about them. So, I like the idea that they're exploring a deep neuroses, that they're trying to constantly tell a different version of the same story. It's clearly something that motivates them, that drives them in some way. Like, let's just say Woody Allen, for example, like his neuroses drive the protagonists of many of his films. With this particular story that we see reoccurring with Nolan, I also find it a bit depressing. Like, I love filmmakers like Steven Sodenberg who seem to really challenge themselves by throwing themselves into different genres, different cultures, protagonists of both genders or other genders, different ages, just basically putting themselves in the corner and trying to direct their way out of that corner, which I think is just much more interesting. And they make a lot of failures, but they also make a lot of winners. And I just admire their creativity in that way. Whereas Nolan, whose films I generally like, I find less surprising. I'm more admiring of the execution of the film opposed to being surprised by the film. This one actually had a twist, I suppose, at a narrative level, so I was more surprised by that. But No, but I know what you mean. Like, what would the filmmaker – like a filmmaker like Danny Boyle who would – Perfect example. Misses, Danny Boyle – yeah. Yeah, you don't really know what sort of a – you know, he might make a science fiction movie and then a movie about zombies and a movie about kids waking up in a world with no Beatles or whatever that one's about. But, you know, yeah, like – or Michael Winterbottom or, like you say, Soderbergh or any of these people with a quite a, a diverse – Although I suppose they're all they're all men. Although interestingly, Ben, you and I are both big Michael Mann fans, and he's essentially making just the same thing again and again, even with the same dialogue. To you and me now, sport, time is luck, all these kind of recurring motifs, themes, and and lines that characters say. But I don't know. I give Mister Mann a total pass. Yeah, I'm the same. I give Michael Mann a pass, and you and I are a huge fan of Mann's films, and his films are just dripping with machismo, like testosterone-driven male protagonists. You look at his, what, last 20 years filmography from Heat, Miami Vice. Black Hat. Collateral. (laughs) Black Hat, yeah, that's right. I mean, they're all male protagonists. What's the word he always uses? They all have a duality in their characters. Like he's obsessed with a lot of antiheroes and I guess he's obsessed with the hero bit and the antihero, like what makes the criminal person good or what makes the good person bad. Yeah, so I guess circling back to Nolan, look, I enjoyed this film. I'll give you my thoughts in greater detail. I enjoyed the film. I had a few issues. If the film was more grounded and didn't have the bizarre Tesla, quote, science, unquote, I would have enjoyed it four times as much. Now, I've got a funny feeling you're going to love the Tesla stuff. But look, Tesla himself, played by David Bowie, was fine, like, Yeah, as a character, it was good. I mean, David Bowie's always been, either he's betrayed himself or he's been perceived by his fans, by popular culture, as being almost an alien on Earth. I always think of David Bowie and Tilda Swinton as being one of the same. (laughs) Like, they kind of have this kind of alien aura about them. And even his songs almost reflect that. So, I think the casting of David Bowie as a genius, as someone ahead of his time, is fantastic and totally a left field. The issue I've got, and spoilers ahead, and as always with these podcast episodes, we'll be spoiling 
the film, particularly in a film like this, which is very much twist-dependent. The issue I've got is the film seems very naturalistic and they're doing magic and the whole story is about them creating magic tricks that actually, to the audience magic, but actually constructed. So everything can be explained. And that's why, I guess, it's an illusion, right? It appears to be magic, but it's an illusion. What, to me, undercuts the entire theme of this film and the detail where you see them create these fantastic uh, inventions or schematics to explain how one character moves from one place to the other place, like, is it called the teleported man? There's like a name for Christian Bale's trick. I think it's a teleported man, which then Hugh Jackman's character tries to imitate. And I love all of that. And they have this wacky Tesla subplot. Transported man. The transported man. Then there's this wacky subplot with Tesla, who's a real-life character who apparently in creating his famous, is it the Fahrenheit coil or whatever he's doing with his crazy sparks and stuff and electricity, actually manages to replicate, first of all, hats, then rabbits, then humans, which is impossible. And to me, that's such a shame because the film, if it stuck to a more grounded reality, would have been much more interesting, but it kind of undercuts for me everything else preceding that. It's like, okay, not only did you choose a real-life character and then fictionalise him, i.e. Tesla, but you then actually added a science fiction element to an otherwise grounded drama thriller. What's your response to that? I like that it becomes a well, – I wouldn't say becomes a sci-fi movie, but I like that it has those Well, it's science elements. fiction in the sense that Tesla is a real-life person who does science and the fiction part is in this film, in this fictionalised version of Tesla, he creates an invention – that does not exist. It's based totally, on totally. science, but it's a fictional version of science. So it's a totally. science fiction element. That's why I'd say that. Okay. Well, okay, then fair. Let's describe this as a sci-fi movie. Yeah, I really like that. I think certainly it feels unexpected. I like the combining of a, like sort of fictionalizing a real person in this way. Look, I don't think anyone watching this is going to go to Wikipedia and find out, try and find out if Nikola Tesla actually was able to clone people. Or maybe you would. If they Google but, um, Tesla now, they'd find Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe he's out there cloning people. But yeah, I really like the way it, it has this twist. And I think the twist really feeds into the, the theme that Hugh Jackman's character, this is how far he'll go. He will clone and kill himself just to be the, the best. And I think if, if I walked into this movie, that is certainly not where I would expect it to go. So... To me, that really plays. Okay, so then tell me what doesn't work for you about The Prestige? Well, I mean, look, I think we touched on it earlier. I think the female characters in this, the women are pretty underwritten. You know, what's her name? Scarlett Johansson. What's her name? Scarlett Johansson just sort of flips between the two magicians. Piper Perabo has two scenes and drowns. Rebecca Hall, who's a phenomenally good actress, sort of just turns up, is confused and hangs herself. I don't really think does a great job with them. I mean, what else do I think doesn't work? What are your thoughts well, on Hugh Jackman's acting? Great. And I love Hugh Jackman as whatever the other Hugh Jackman, like the idiot version of uh, Angier that they have to get. Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he actually, Hugh Jackman does a great job playing the lookalike idiot. He's great. He's basically a drunken, failed actor, right? 
Yeah. I mean, you said earlier that Nolan is very good at casting, and I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, Jack Mann is really good in this. Bale, Christian Bale, Michael Caine. The women, although their parts are underwritten, are all really great in it. Like you said, David Bowie is pretty inspired casting. Like the idea of having like someone so sort of famous and sort of otherworldly now as Tesla then, you got to imagine people would have thought of Tesla as some kind of like sort of rock star-esque. Elon Musk-like character. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Even though his accent absolutely blows. So, yeah, look, I really don't think there's a lot of stuff that doesn't really play for me. I mean, maybe there's a couple of plot holes or something that either I'm too stupid to have figured out or the movie just thinks it's maybe slightly smarter than it thinks it is. Well, that's that's actually a criticism often made of a Christopher Nolan film is that it often feels like it's trying to be smarter than what it is and then when you go to the refrigerator to get a sandwich one day later, the plot holes start appearing. But at the time, you just enjoy the ride and go with it. You can consult with as many astrophysicists as you want, but going, oh, yeah, fifth-dimensional beings live behind a bookshelf. When I'm standing at the fridge, that does seem kind of stupid. Thankfully, that's that's not this movie. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? Like, here I am criticising the logic of having this science fiction element of Tesla, a real-life person, creating a science fiction machine that creates um, duplicates of people. That seems pretty far-fetched. When you compare it to the science meets the fiction, the science fiction of Interstellar, holy shit, it seems radically tame in comparison. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, um, yeah, look, there's not much that doesn't work for me in this film. Then how about the twist? How does the twist stand up, like, on repeat viewing? Because you mentioned you've watched it a few times over and over. Big deal that you know what's going to happen. Clearly for you, it must still work. Yeah, well, I think Nolan's movies generally have this really kind of, like, nice propulsive editing and music. I mean, I think David Julian did the score for this. He hadn't started working with Hans Zimmer yet, and he hadn't quite hit that kind of, like, ultra-pushy score. And the film was criticised, by the way, for its score, interestingly. It was, like, one of the few criticisms made about the film was the score. Really? I think The Prestige has a really nice score. Yeah. Along with the score. I agree. I mean, you can't whistle it, but, you know, it's... Pretty good. Yeah, I liked it. Look, again, I really like the twist. It really doesn't bother me. I mean, there's a few questions around, like, the machine. There's a line where someone's like, oh, I've already made it or already used it or I've already built it for someone else or something like that that I don't quite understand. But, um, no, I, I like okay, it. Okay, well, on that note, why don't we move on to a review of The Illusionist? So, kick things off, mate. Pretty different film. Same thing. Did you like it? And what worked for you about The Illusionist? I think we're kind of we're sort of diametrically opposed on this one because I think I like the prestige more than you do, but you like the illusionist more than me. I think I like I the illusionist movie- less than the prestige, so I like the prestige right. more. I oh, okay. like both these films less than you. <laughs> okay, so if we add up our grand total scores, we're probably even. Yeah, look, I think the illusionist is kind of just a it's a sort of tricky forget like. I really don't. Uh, even, I actually, even uh, I see what you did there. I see it very clever. It's not that pun. good. Maybe very we clever. can do better ones. We'll try and do some no, no. better magic puns. Mr. Punster, but, please continue. Sure. I just, even though I've watched it recently, it fades from memory pretty quickly. Weirdly, I think that the magic in The Prestige is much more grounded than the magic in The Illusionist, even though The Prestige turns into a sci-fi movie. There's a lot of kind of like just really CG magic in The Illusionist, growing the plant and the projected kid and all that sort of stuff. A lot of that doesn't work for me. The twist you could probably, you can pick a mile away. You know, you don't kill Jessica Biel off halfway through a movie and not expect her to 
come back. Edward Norton, I think he's kind of he's pretty flat in this movie. The person who kind of brings it is Giamatti, but he always does. So apart from some technical stuff like really nice photography and some really nice production design, I don't know, the whole thing's just a bit forgettable. You know what's interesting is that Ricky Jay and uh, three other magicians actually advised the director on The Illusionist and Ed Norton and taught Ed Norton and also Aaron Taylor-Johnson who played the teenage version of Norton teenage Eisenheimer, Eisenheim to actually do real magic. And a lot of those projections done in the film were done practically as you would see it of the time in 1889. Now, it was slightly exaggerated. They kind of amplified the effects. But it's funny you mentioned that a lot of the effects look very CG or not realistic because apparently, for better or worse, they tried to actually demonstrate them or uh, depict them as they would have actually done at the time. So it's actually a massive failing of the film if people, viewers like yourself, actually thought it looked fake. But maybe it looked fake because it was actually a fake real trick. That's a possibility as well. I think the tree you mentioned is clearly CG, and I'm not sure how they would have done that in real life. And obviously, you know how some things in real life you can see like a hologram, for example, or 3D, but that's harder to see once filmed. So yeah, there's that right. slight complication as well. Like you've got to be present and actually be in person with the nature of two eyeballs to appreciate the illusion, which is lost when you shoot it down the lens of a you know a single lens camera. Yeah, well, weirdly, magic is actually not very interesting for cinema, in sort of in my opinion. Like as soon as you can put edits and CG and actors are all inherently stooges. There is no actual trick there. It's just all manufactured. You know, the great thing about seeing magic or close-up magic, sleight of hand, whatever, is when it's live and in person and you're actually fooled. I guess both of these movies, in a way, suffer from that. I'm so glad you said that. You know what I mean? Oh, look, mate, you are reading my mind. So, you're 100% right, I think, in that magic is something that you've got to appreciate often in person, in one take- without turning away, so essentially a real-life one-take, because the minute you cut away, either in film or you look away, it's an opportunity for the person to do something that makes it easy to achieve the illusion. But the whole point of a magic trick or an illusion is that you, the audience member or viewer in real life, are watching and looking out for the tell. How was this magic trick performed? And you're desperately looking left and right, following both hands. Let's say it's the old cuff and ball trick or whatever it might be, trying to work out how the magician did the trick because you know what they're doing, as it appears, is impossible. And that's the thing that I think is the struggle for any film about magic to get past is that we essentially see magic every day in a Marvel film. It's called CG. Like, we see the impossible, <laughs> right? No, but we do. We basically see the impossible. We see aliens land on Earth. We see Iron Men fly around in the sky. Like, we see the impossible <laughs> we see already. Iron Men fly, sure, okay, yeah. Well, I guess it is the plural in uh, Iron Man 3, right? Sure. So, we see a form of magic. It's called post-production occur. Like, the magic of even animation is making the impossible come to life and we believe in it. And that's why when I see other films about magic, such as Now You See Me, which basically create impossible magic tricks and 
then use CG to demonstrate it, which then amplifies the falseness of the trick. I mean, I actually really enjoyed the first Now You See Me in spite of that. But I think I mean, you're behind the eight like ball. a superhero movie, though, right? Like, they're doing things that are – don't they stop raindrops? Well, that's it, exactly. And, and, stupid- and who's Yozzy with the orange hair in that film? Oh, Isla Fisher. Isla Fisher, right. She actually floats in a bubble or a giant raindrop at one stage. And I don't want to step on a few questions later on in the podcast episode, but this is what, like Doctor Strange, right? Doctor Strange is a magician superhero, and that film was just full of CG. But the way they approach magic in that film is to basically sell it as like a version of science. Same with Thor. Wait, wait. Doctor Strange is not a magician. He's a sorcerer. It's very different, as distinct uh, also yeah, from right. a wizard yeah. or a warlock. Okay. Or maybe he's a warlock. I'm not right. sure. I concede being entirely wrong there. However, I will mention that Thor, the 2011 Origins film, they actually, correct me if I'm wrong, don't they say that magic is their science? Yeah, I'm some pretty version sure. of like to someone who doesn't understand, uh, wouldn't you think science is magic or some bullshit? Like Something that, like which, that. that yeah, that's I basically think- their... Um, Screenwriting term is that that's their hanger lantern. It's basically you explain it away as being what you call magic, we call a version of science. You puny humans just don't understand our version of science. Something like that. Yeah. Isn't it, wasn't it like Arthur C. Clarke who said that? You know, the bloke who wrote 2001. Ah, you still say the best. Yeah. Like he had some, some very specific saying any advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's a great line and when actually expressed through the uh, the words of a very intelligent, creative author as him, I go with. My fear would be <laughs> that a flat earther or someone like that would actually use it to essentially justify their lack of scientific knowledge in relation to their dumb theory. But, yeah, if it's someone like Arthur C. Clarke, I'm there. Fair enough. What about you with the illusion? I agree. I think it's pretty forgettable. I think the twist you can see a mile off. I think the way the twist is executed in the film is the reason for that. There's a classic trick in filmmaking where I think Hitchcock once said, you can tell a thriller in three ways. I think it's – now jump in and correct me if I'm wrong. It's mystery, suspense, and what's the third? Is it thriller? You (laughs) You might have to actually have to Wikipedia this. But I I think it's suspense, mystery. Anyway, the point is this. There's three versions, and the versions are like this. In one version, you, the audience, are ahead of what the character is discovering. The second version is you're discovering things at the same pace as that hero. And the third version is that you're behind the hero, so they discover it. So like Columbo, for example, would always discover at the end of an episode or film who the murderer was, surprising both the characters on screen but also the audience as well. So in The Illusionist, there's a cut where we see Jessica Biel's character kind of like go off screen, there's a scream, and then she kind of like then a horse races off and it basically is implied that she has been killed, right? But it's because the filmmakers are not showing you what actually happened. Like her actually being stabbed. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you're seeing essentially like security cam footage and something's happening off screen. Yeah, yeah. Because they find her body the next day. But we've all seen a million movies where people take the, like pills that slow your heart rate. Yeah, it's called Romeo and Juliet. So we're like yeah. way ahead of- uh- <laughs> Shakespeare did it like 400 years ago. 
that hack. Yeah. What do you know about tropes? Yeah. So what you're is the difference between sort of suspense and surprise. Like when there's a bomb under the table and we know it's there, we're like, oh my god, when is it going to explode? But if we don't know the bomb's there and it goes off, we're like, oh my god, that was such a surprise. Yeah, exactly. And there's a version where the hero knows under the table and we don't. He does something or she does something and the camera pans down, and then we see it. So there are different ways in which we can be behind, ahead, or understand things at the same time as the character. And this film, when we have that part where Jessica Biel is implicitly killed off screen, it's done in such an obvious way that because we don't see the murder, then, as they say in all types of superhero sequels, unless you see a dead body, there's always a chance someone's going to come back to life. Or unless you see the murder happen explicitly, they weren't actually killed and they've just taken some magic potion to make them unconscious and pretend to be dead. So totally. that twist I could see coming a mile off. Look- I think the film actually suffers from a simple plot, which is probably because from a simple short story. I mean, some short stories can make great films and you can actually revel in the leanness of the storyline. This one, to me, doesn't benefit from that. It's too lean and I'm sure it was fleshed out beyond the short story. But compared to the complexity of that tightly calibrated plot in The Prestige, it looks kind of pretty limp and simple in comparison. And totally. that'd be fine if it had like a momentum, if it had a propulsive narrative that actually took advantage of it. Like there are films out there with very simple plots that are intoxicating and riveting. Like I point you to the Keanu Reeves masterpiece, Speed, right? They're on a bus. <laughs> it can't go below is it 80Ks an hour or 50 miles an hour, whatever it is. Therefore, deal with all the consequences and hurdles that arise to try and keep it above that speed limit. Very simple plot, hey man, but hey it's man. riveting. To be fair, they're in a lift, then they're on a bus, then they're on top of a train. Yeah, I know. I mean, aren't they actually only on the bus for about an hour? Nonetheless, yeah, that's right. simple look, concept, look. lean plot, well executed. 100%. And the prestige is like two hours and something, two hours and five, two hours and ten minutes, and it doesn't really feel- slow i think the illusionist is like an hour 45 and maybe you should have made Plots. a 90 90 minute movie 87 minute movie Gabe, as you would often say we need to return to the uh 89 minute movie like i, I don't even want 89 minutes i'm 84 minutes is fine is that with credits uh <laughs> is that with credit <laughs> um it's probably with credits and a pointless sex scene oh really so really uh, it's basically know. uh 63 minutes of actual plot Look, Evil Dead 2 doesn't have a pointless sex scene, but it achieved everything it did in 84 minutes. If you can't do that in more than 84 minutes, you don't deserve to make a movie. 84 minutes. Wow. The Illusionist would have probably been better at 84 minutes. Drop the gavel. The judge has spoken. Well, maybe. Okay. Well, let me tell you a few things about The Illusionist I did like. It looks spectacular. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, Dick Pope, the cinematographer, was also nominated for an Oscar in the same year as the cinematographer of The Prestige. So that's two films, both about magicians, both nominated for DP awards, which is pretty amazing. The film actually has a fantastic, I think, colour grade that gives it this really wonderful feel with vignetting around the sides. Vignetting is like that kind of darkened colouring around the sides, which is both... I think imitating old lenses of the day and old photographs of the day. And to me, it resembles basically an 1890s photograph brought to life. So I love the character of that film. Like it feels 
rich, lived in of its time. Um, I love Ed Norton. I'm always there for Ed Norton. Now, you mentioned you thought he might have been perhaps sleeping through this one. I like him. I'm always there for Ed Norton. I'm always there for Paul Giamatti. There was odd casting in comparison to The Prestige. I think Jessica Biel has a look and has makeup in this film that looks like she walked off a sexy rom-com in the early 2000s into this film. Like, she doesn't have a look to me that suits an 1890s film, whereas Rebecca Hall, I think because she's a beautiful woman but she has slightly imperfect teeth and doesn't have that very glamorous, you know, you know the high cheekbones and that kind of aesthetic that's very contemporary, she looks much more grounded in that 1890s era than Jessica Biel. And also Jessica Biel also brings, I guess, the whole history of her Justin Timberlake relationship and her real-world existence, which doesn't work for this film for me. Yeah, but you don't say that about – like, I would say the same thing about Edward Norton, but what would I, like, didn't Edward Norton bring the whole, oh, he brings his relationship with Courtney Love and the fact that – doesn't he have a modern sensibility that doesn't kind of work as a Viennese magician? No, I disagree entirely. I don't think Ed Norton is a classically handsome man. Like, you look at Fight Club, for example, he's deliberately not meant to be the good-looking guy. I think he's an attractive man, but if you're basically putting Ed Norton up against Jessica Biel and looks to part for either gender, I'd say that she's, by Hollywood standards, higher up than he is for men of his age as a leading actor. Doesn't mean he's not a great actor, but I think he looks like more of an every man, and Jessica Biel looks less like an every woman. Well, they don't really cast every woman as the lead in Hollywood movies, do they? Yeah, Melissa Leo. She's great. What the fuck? When was she a romantic lead in a movie about dueling magicians? Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> You're right. She's like 65 years old. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I didn't actually catch the words uh, lead oh, yeah. or romantic. Diane Keaton. Wasn't this? Isn't she what always in films occasionally Keaton as- Super charming. What the fuck? <laughs> What's that? Look, all, all, I'm say- all I'm saying is that, yeah, okay. We can acknowledge that the, uh, the scope then for male leads who look like every man- Versus the scope for female leads who look like every every woman's different parameters. So this problem that you have probably ends up being much more geared towards female characters. Oh, my problem is actually with Hollywood casting in that okay, fair, I think okay. that they should have cast someone who less, looked less like Jessica Biel to reflect more the era and just someone <laughs> more who like looked- Melissa Leo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ed Norton is trying to save this- Melissa Leo, Milf she's like, character. He's like, no, she's not. It's just that people aged much worse back then. She's like, I'm, I'm 24 years old. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, oh god, that's rough. Actually, speaking of rough, okay, controversial point here, and I'm pretty sure you're about to tear strips off me for saying this, but oh man, Rufus Sewell. Oh, no, oh, I love him. It's a rough ride for me. It's a rough ride. <sighs> So I'm Team Rufus. Look, you're Team Rufus and Team Christopher Eccleston, I assume, aren't you? Yeah, well, Christopher Eccleston's not in either of these movies. No, but this is the thing. So we did that <laughs> oh, right, okay. podcast Broadly, episode. Yes, I'm Team Eccleston. <laughs> so basically, there was a film. What's that film? The trip to Italy and a trip to France? Wait, the those- ones with Rob Brydon yeah. and Steve Coogan? Your dream film right. is being in a film like that. On a trip to, let's say, Colombia, 
with Rufus Sewell and Christopher Eccleston in the back seat. Well, we may as well throw in David Thewlis as well. Oh, a horrible experience for everyone. That's the trifecta. The question is, if you're driving your car and you guys are bantering away, are you forcing all three of these British actors in the back seat or you have one in the front seat, in the passenger seat with you to try and diffuse the banter? Honestly, though, if it's David Thewlis, Christopher Eccleston, I'm going to kick Rufus Sewell out. I want Eddie Marsden, who is in The Illusionist. Oh, Eddie Marsden's great. Then instead of Rufus Sewell and maybe then Peter Milan as well. And we've just got like the quad of British character actors who probably played people who were alcoholics, kicked in doors and really screamed at people. So remind me who Peter Milan is or Milan. I think he's a Scottish actor. Famous for- Oh, well, he played Mother Superior in Transporting, the um, drug dealer. He was in Braveheart. He was in Miss Julie. He was in Session 9. He was in Children of Men. He was in, I think he was in some of the Harry Potter movies, but he's got one of those really sort of like working class English British actors. He was um, in Tyrannosaur, the lead in Tyrannosaur, where he played a sort of like alcoholic, unemployed working-class Brit. He's a classic. He's a character. Okay. Yeah. He's a character. He's a character actor. Okay. They've all played kind of abusive drunks. I just want to go on a trip with a car full of actors who are famous for playing abusive drunk assholes. And I think Eddie Marsden, Christopher Eccleston, Peter Milan, and who was the other one? <laughs> uh, Rufus Sewell? No, I kicked him out. Oh, Doesn't right. Matter. Okay. Anyway. I don't know. Well, we let me uh, bring him back to Rufus Sewell. So, like Chris Eccleston in Gone in 60 Seconds. I feel they both attended the uh, LA big acting class before both shoots kicked off because I do find their performances big. And I kind of feel with both actors too, they were positioned to be the next big thing in some way. Maybe not lead characters. I think Chris Eccleston isn't as classically attractive by Hollywood standards. Rufus Sewell probably is, but- I don't know. They all kind of seem to follow Joseph Fiennes into no career land. (laughs) That's harsh, right? And Christopher Eccleston's been in heaps of stuff. And also, Christopher Eccleston never played Michael Jackson in a TV movie that was never released. So, who did? Or he did? Joseph Fiennes. Really? Yeah. Look, that's probably a topic for another- Google it. Google it another day. But look, yeah. Yeah, Okay. Okay. Rufus didn't work for you. I like Rufus. Okay. Well, I just found he was- a little bit too theatrical, and I think it was meant to be also the character. So there's this fuzzy line between the character being annoying, egotistical, just very loud, and there was parts where it felt like it was bleeding from the character to real life, and I didn't quite get on board with that. So there's that. Paul Giamatti, I like, I like him in everything. He's fantastic. In comparison, I never see Paul Giamatti ever in a film, and not believe him in that role. Now, I might not always believe he's the character. I might always see him as Paul Giamatti, but he always feels like a grounded character in that film. So he was great in this role and brings a fantastic pinch of cynicism in that character as the policeman, which works really well. Someone who doesn't want to do what he has to do, but does it unwillingly because that's the nature of his role. But he was great. But, yeah, look, it's a very simple plot. It's a very simple film. It looks fantastic. The production design is sensational. All the actors are believable. It's just that it didn't, to me, add enough. So, any final words before we move on? 
I do love the bit at the end where Paul Giamatti figures out that there was a ruse and then he laughs to himself but loudly at the train station going, ha, 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 I've been fooled but I've fooled by the best. We laugh, he laughs, everyone laughs. Yeah, it's just terrible. Terrible. <laughs> Big fan of those moments in movies. Nice. All right, let's jump to coincidence or ripoff, notable similarities. So did you know that not only did Ricky Jay advise Ed Norton on the magic tricks in The Illusionist, but obviously he also appeared in The Prestige. So this was Ricky Jay's big year. Great name for a Do you think this was Ricky Jay's big year? Oh, we'll come back to that because I've got Ricky Jay down for one of the awards later on and I'm very happy with this choice. I love Ricky Jay. So you want to talk about Ricky Jay a bit later? Yeah, yeah, I want to park a whole conversation about how great Ricky Jay is. Okay, great. But he is great. So he cleans up a few awards down the track, and this could be Ricky okay. Jay's film or Ricky Jay's year. So we'll if come he back. wasn't dead, he'd be so impressed to hear. This. Oh no, you're stepping on the award. The uh, the Lin Linroy is what's his name? Yeah, but Ricky Jay's dead. Delroy Linda. That's it. I've actually right. forgotten the name of our award. Okay. What other quinky dinks have you got? Uh, I guess a quick question was which film has aged better because they're both films that have twists. I had the Prestige. How about you? Oh yeah, I think the the Prestige has aged. Pretty well, and certainly I don't think it's – has it really aged at all? There's nothing in it that dates well, it Well, I guess terribly. just the twist itself means it's potentially more vulnerable to being less rewatchable. But I think it's so well crafted that, like a lot of good films of twists, you can appreciate it in spite of that and actually see different elements to it in knowing the twist coming up. Whereas – Yeah, I, th- I think you should definitely watch this a second time or a third time or a fifth or sixth, whatever you'd like, yeah. knowing how it ended because then you're like, oh, yeah, which one was Christian Bale at any point? Was he Alfred or was he the name of his other brother? And how did I not notice that his – what do they call them? Ingenues? No, the fixers, the guys who designed them, that his, like, side man, his oh, yeah, sidekick yeah. was yeah, so, yeah. Clearly, <laughs> so clearly um, him in makeup. Yeah, totally. Alfred's actually an amalgamation of the names of both the characters, by the way. Oh, is yeah. it? Yeah. So, little fact there for you. The now, factoroo. plot holes or missed opportunities, which film do you think did the best with the concept? Oh, again, the prestige. Yeah, I think so. Like the concept of magic. Yeah, and also to basically structure the screenplay around the three steps of a prestige is pretty impressive. Indeed. All right, let's do some uh, trivia, some behind the scenes. Little did you know. Did you realise that the word prestige originally meant a trick from the Latin prestigium, meaning illusion? I see did the link, not know that. See the link there? The prestige, illusion, illusionist. Very clever. All right, moving on. Casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. So let's see who else may have ended up in the hot shoes of any of the cast or crew. So apparently Sam Mendes initially wanted to be in this movie after American Beauty. Wait, wanted to be in it or direct it? Oh, sorry, direct, I should say, to clarify. And Christopher Priest, the writer of the book, was actually all for this, but then he actually saw Nolan's first film following and he hadn't seen Memento, which was still in post-production. So we're basically going off a four-by-three ratio, black-and-white, 50-minute feature film, which is kind of pretty experimental. And he saw that and he thought, you know what? I want to hand the keys to this first-time filmmaker. Which is pretty amazing. Fuck American Beauty. I like this guy. Fuck the uh, Oscar-winning film. I'm going to give it to the guy who made the indie black and white film on the budget of like $20,000 or something. Yeah, fuck Um, Road to Perdition. Uh, I'm going to give it to this guy and he's a black and white movie. Exactly. Another casting woulda, shoulda, coulda. 
Josh Harnett was originally considered for the role of Robert Angier, played by Hugh Jackman. So I think we'd agree that'd be a terrible choice, right? Like way too young. (laughs) Yeah, true. And very bad facial hair. Another fact, David Bowie initially rejected the role until Christopher Nolan flew out to see him and convinced him otherwise. Another fact, do you realise that six of the actors in The Prestige have all starred in superhero films? Oh, they- surely it's more than that now. Oh, so bang through them. Go for it. Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale. Was well, you've got to say which one. So Hugh Jackman, well, X-Men. Hugh Jackman was Wolverines. Christian Bale was Batman. Rebecca Hall was in Iron Man 3. Yep. Scarlett Johansson was Black Widow. Yep. Andy Serkis was that South African guy in Black Panther. Yep. Michael Caine. What superhero movie was Michael Caine in? He was Alfred. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's shameful. Fucking shame job. I couldn't remember that. Oh, yeah, of course he was. Yeah. Who else? Uh, I think that's it. Let's move on. Ricky Jay was in a Bond film. Really? Does Which one? Count? The one with Jonathan Price. Oh. Uh, to Die Another Day or Tomorrow Never Dies? Or oh, yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies. Someone Dies Tomorrow? Someone get, Dies Tomorrow. Don't get wise Bond about Bond, man. <laughs> Bond's a good shit. All right, last uh, casting, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Jessica Biel replaced Liv Tyler, who dropped out just before filming. Okay, boom. Liv Tyler would have been better in this role, I think, and would have looked more 1890s and suited this kind of ethereal character and that kind of um, very magical, dreamlike aesthetic of that film than Jessica Biel. That's my hot take. Uh, no thoughts? Fair enough. Nah, I mean, yeah, sure. I love Why your not? enthusiasm. Sure. <laughs> she worked on European movies. She was in that Bertolucci movie. Exactly. She knows her Czech Republic. Sure. Okay. Sure. Moving on to Spot the Aussie. All right. Well, I think the procedure is pretty obvious, right? It's... Huge Jackman? That's the Peter guy. Brian. Uh, now, right. any Aussies in The Illusionist? Not oh, that I, don't I know, know is there? of. No, none jump to mind. I don't think so. No, I think they were mainly British and American actors. So, yeah, no standouts there. All right, let's jump to Big Trouble in Little Production. So, just a few facts for you. The Illusionist was filmed in 46 days in Eastern Europe, specifically the Czech Republic. And why would that be, Gabe? Why would you shoot a film in Eastern Europe opposed to Western Europe as someone who's actually been the screenwriter of a film produced in Eastern Europe? Why would you shoot a movie in Eastern Europe? You got it. I don't know. It's probably cheap. (laughs) Yep. The average extra was paid $30 US per day. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cheap. Yeah. What part of Eastern Europe did they shoot in? The Czech Republic. Yeah, right. They had Uh, some really lax sort of like work. They're, not, they're clearly not unionised heavily. There. No. Well, I think there's a reason why they shot Blade 2 and many other films over the last 20 years there because, uh, yeah, they don't have the uh, Teamsters in the same capacity as uh, <laughs> California. Right. Another big trouble and little production fact, there was actually a usage of fucking used in a sexual sense that was changed to, quote, fornicating, unquote, in post-production because even though you can have one usage of fuck as a general rule to get a PG-13 rating in the US, it has to be in a non-sexual context. And in this case, it was used in a sexual context. So that's a change. That's something I didn't know. I thought I knew everything about the one fuck rule per movie. I didn't realise it had to be in a non-sexual context. Fact, 
learned. Now you know. Yeah. And the other thing was, in the original story of The Illusionist, Eisenheim didn't frame the Duke for murder, which is a pretty substantive change from the feature adaptation. Yeah, so there's even less plot or less twist or whatever in the original. Yeah, yeah. So he just faked her death and then the Duke or the Prince, whatever he is, the Earl, just shot himself or whatever and that was the end. I don't know. I think it was actually something more like he actually may have even killed him, but it was because the Duke was actually characterised or demonised as being a much more malevolent character. It kind of was more justifiable. Either way, he gets his comeuppance. But- Listeners, please tweet at us to correct us if we are incorrect. <laughs> All right. Sure. Let's jump to the awards, my friend, or let's start with the box office. So, have a guess. Which movie was the box office champ? I'm going to guess The Prestige. Yep. The Prestige had a production budget of $40 US million. It made $53 million domestically plus $56.5 million in foreign sales for a grand total of $109.5 million US dollars. Did you say it had a budget of $43 million? 40, yes. Wow, that's so cheap. You've got to imagine if they made this today, it'd be $100 million. I know. Just, like, it's basically have- practical sets, lots of extras, lots of scenes, a bit of visual effects. But, yeah, I agree. This film looks more than $40 million worth. They basically make uh, romantic comedies these days, and they cost $100 million, right? Yeah, but, I mean, even back then, I'm pretty sure that town and country movie cost $100 and something million. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, th- th- you're talking $40 million. This is crazy. Wow, good on and them. Hugh Jackman was pretty famous then, and Christopher Bale had played Batman, so, you know, they would have oh, charged- Oh, it's a great cast. Yeah. Okay, let's jump to The Illusionist. It had a production budget of basically, oh, like almost a third, $16.5 million US dollars. Really? Wow, yeah. that's so cheap. I think so. Those we, Czechoslovakian shekels or whatever they are sort of go far. They go a long way. It actually did a great domestic gross, almost $40 million US dollars plus $48 million foreign for a worldwide total of almost $88 million US dollars. Now, this blows my mind. This is in 2006. The Prestige made... $109.5 million, and The Illusionist made $88 US million. There is no way, no way in hell in 2019, if you release The Illusionist now, you could A, make it for $16.5 million, even with inflation accounted for, or it would make almost $100 million. No way. You agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, The Prestige might make money just based on Nolan can release a poster or a trailer that just says the word Nolan and it'll do business. But if The Illusionist, directed by Neil Berger, starring Ed Norton, came out tomorrow, no way. Sold to Netflix. Yeah, 100%. 100%. All right. Let's look at the uh, Rotten Tomato scores here. The Prestige, 76% tomato meter score with critics. And 92%, which is huge, with audiences. In comparison, The Illusionist, 73% on the tomato meter with critics and 83% with audiences. So both films have been like really acclaimed by audiences, which surprised me, particularly The Illusionist, like 83%. That's crazy. So, yeah, The Prestige takes it for both box office and critical ratings. All right. Oh, by the way, I should mention one thing. The Prestige was 
Nolan's lowest rated film by critics until Interstellar, which means he must have a hell of a high score, a hell of a, an average for all of his movies. Incredible. All right, time for the awards. Let's not make them as long as the annual Academy Awards. Let's kick it off with best title. So, The Prestige versus The Illusionist. Gabe, the winner. Well, I guess, what do you want? Do you want what it says on the box? I know you're a fan of practical titles that when you say, hey, what's the movie called? It's called The Illusionist. What's it about? An illusionist. Makes yeah. sense, right? You, you say, yeah. you're going to go for that, aren't you? You saw right through me. Yeah. So, we go, oh, hey, man, I'm, I'm writing a movie. What's it called? The Prestige. What's it about? Cars, Prestige. luxury cars. Prestige worldwide. Uh, a Mercedes, yeah. a Louis Vuitton handbag that's got prestige. Prestige Worldwide. It's a spin-off of Step Brothers and their company, Prestige Worldwide. Classic. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. The Illusionist, you know what it is. It makes sense. It just makes sense. It says it is on the tin. All right. Best poster, The Prestige versus The Illusionist. Again, it's a hard award to describe to listeners, but having seen the posters, Gabe, uh, The Prestige has three floating heads with some sort of wave of colour in between, and that's it. The Illusionist has... Ed Norton, either in a close-up or a long shot, holding a glowing orb towards the audience. Which one? Well, I hate that stupid poster with Ed Norton because he looks like he's doing duck face, pursing his lips. So, I'm not voting for that. Okay, I'm giving it to The Illusionist because, to me, it's it conveys magic in the poster. And I don't know, I love Christopher Nolan films, but and most of his posters are fantastic, but the Prestige poster is pretty lame. I mean, it's... To me, the worst example of floating heads. There's actually a side poster which actually uses like a hypnotic pattern, which they didn't use at the box office, which is quite cool. But the main poster they used was pretty generic and boring. So even though I enjoy The Prestige overall as a better film, to me, The Illusionist cleans up with this award as well. Yeah, we're talking about the key art that you see on IMDb, not some version of a poster like some cracked Polish, awesome Polish poster. That oh, yeah. obscure but wicked. I love those Russian or Eastern European posters. They're great. Yeah, they're great. Thailand also does some really cool ones. And Anyway. I love the Japanese titles of films, like when they just kind of call something like The Fast and Furious, like Supercar Space. Yeah, I think um, what Prestige is called like Illusion Versus or something in Japan. Oh, is it? Yeah, something like that. Right, okay. All right, let's uh, jump to the, uh, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck. Who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time when they starred in the Michael Bay film Armageddon? Who got their big break in these twin movies, Gabe? Starting with The Prestige. Anyone? Did anyone get their big break in this? Yeah, this to me is pretty much a dead heat because no one did in either film, except maybe Piper Perabo in The Prestige. Although she did kick on, she had been in Coyote Ugly, probably her first and biggest box office film. And then had a solid career on Covert Affairs, one of those forgettable TV shows that my partner watches at home and drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, it's a Blu-ray box set with all 75 episodes. No, thank goodness it streamed. If that was on the bookshelf, I'd be just – I'd be a very cranky Shame. man. Yeah. Shame. So, I'm giving it to The Prestige, but it's a, an award by default. How about you? Bit of a wet noodle, this award, this time. Totally. All right, the Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them. 
starting with Prestige. Anyone? Is there anyone before? I mean, is this Andy Circus before he was famous? Yes, I had Andy Circus because up until now, he'd always been the motion capture or performance capture guy. We actually never saw him on screen. But I think this is one of his first roles where we actually saw him, the person, the actor, not a character that was created with CG. So I had Andy Circus down. Yeah, although he's probably, I bet if you went to his IMDb, he was probably in about 50 things in England previous to being Gollum, where he was probably on screen all the time. But, like, when are you out there watching Stella Does Tricks, that mid-90s movie starring Kelly MacDonald? But gay. Not so much these days. You know the Hollywood way, right? If a film was made outside Hollywood, no one sees it. That's was it ever really made? It was not. That movie I just mentioned, who knows what it was called? <laughs> never mentioned. Never never made. It's an illusion. Okay. Right, moving on. The Illusionist. I had Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who plays the teenage Eisenheim in the beginning of the film. He yeah, I didn't even recognise him. Got, nor did I. This guy, like, oscillates with his age. How in 2006 was he playing a child and now he's like an old man? Well, I guess he played a teenager or a very young adult in Kick-Ass that was shortly after The Illusionist. So, I think that, for me, he's the winner. Because I agree, Andy Serkis was probably in 50 films before, whereas this was probably one of the first films starring Alan Taylor-Johnson. So, I figured The Illusionist takes it. All right. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award, named after the iconic performance by Tommy Lee Jones in a supporting role in The Fugitive. So who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with The Prestige? Did anyone steal this? I'd only say Michael Caine in that essentially he elevates everything (laughs) and he was the third actor listed, I suppose, behind Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Uh, You've got to go way further down the the list and be like, oh, check it out. It was someone. I just wore the dead rubber in that there was no one in either film. Well, Eddie Marsden, he's good value. He was in The Illusionist. Okay. Do you want to hand it to The Illusionist? No, it's not like he's stealing it. It's not like, oh, shit, check out this guy. I wish he was in it more. Oh, wow. Oh, they killed Drexel. Yeah, if you compare it to the... Moniker of the award, Tommy Lee Jones. I don't think Eddie Marsden's doing any Tommy Lee Jones. No, no, okay. All right. Next. Dead rubber. They both lose. Next award, the Dustin Diamond Award, named in honour of the actor who didn't kick on with a big career after finding fame in the 1980s TV series Saved by the Bell. So who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in this film? I'd say in the prestige, Piper Perabo unless you count covert affairs, and I very clearly do not. You've obviously got some deep-sit pent-up feelings about having to watch via osmosis covert affairs. So when you say watch, I would say subjected to, like in that scene sure. in- um, Like Clockwork Orange. Yeah, your eyes totally. Open. Okay, yeah. well, let's give her this award for what she has done to the- My psyche. Yes, indeed. All right, Piper, come on down for the Dustin Diamond Award. Add it to also, the we need to come up with a new name for this dang award. Dustin Diamond just ain't floating my boat no more. All right, okay, I'll mix it up. So, hang on, hasn't it already been through two names? It's been through more than that or whatever, but I'm, and I always threaten to try and think up a new, like someone who wrecked their career, the Mel Gibson Award for, I don't know. Next time. We'll figure next it out. Next time. Yeah, next time. All next right, time. next award, the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies? I had Christopher Nolan in The Prestige, as yes. I think this Christopher, was- definitely Christopher Nolan. All right. And The Illusionist, anyone? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Nah. Nolan gets it. Okay. The best dialogue award. What's your favourite quote? I think we all know the best quote in the prestige, right? What is, in your opinion, the best quote in the prestige? It's the one I'm going to try Are and you find. watching closely? Yeah. The very first line of the movie? Yeah. No. The, is that the one which basically says, you want to be fooled? Oh, now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to work it out. You want to be fooled. Exactly. There's actually that grab is used as kind of like the intro music to the spoiler section of a podcast I love called the Slash Film Podcast. And they so I basically hear that line every single week. And I love it because it also featured, as I recall, as a voiceover narration of the trailer. It's just an intoxicating line. So to me- Intoxicating. Yeah, it wins just- Straight up. Right. How about you? I also like, the secret impresses no one. The trick you use it for is everything. That's terrible. Just awful way I butchered that. Was that accent. Hugh Jackman? <laughs> no, that was me trying to do Christian Bale. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, Christian the Bale, The secret yeah. impresses no one. The secret <laughs> impresses no one. <laughs> the secret impresses no one. But it actually was Michael Caine, wasn't it? No, that's Christian Bale who says that. Oh, do you want me to try to do my Michael Payne impersonation? Yeah, that's right. We were always talking about a trip to Italy before, so you should actually do the no, rest of this you entire can't, you podcast. you bring up a trip to Italy or, like, the trip, and then in your mind you have now conjured the imagination of Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan doing their excellent Kane accents, and then now you will try and do it. So it's like a magic trick. It's an accent on an accent. It's a prestige, right? You have the setup. I would say it is a Then you invert it. An absolute awful trick. <laughs> don't, don't do it. If you're listening to this and now you're trying to do a Michael Caine voice, stop. <laughs> stop it right now. All right. On that note, we should jump to the appropriately named Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. I actually had Michael Caine for the prestige. <laughs> yeah, it's him versus Giamatti, I guess. Oh, I had Rufus Sewell because I thought Giamatti was restrained. In the yeah, originist. I guess so. Okay. Neither of these movies really feature a standout mega acting Cage essayed esque bit of performance so it's really a bust yeah movies all movies should have dead that. rubber okay the taking a paycheck award which speaks for itself i actually had michael kane again for the prestige okay. even though I don't, th- I don't think he was sleeping in this film i thought he was actually on He's and i old yeah and then i had paul giamatti in the illusionist even though he also was trying his best but i felt it was an odd fit i don't know it's a dead rubber because there wasn't an obvious person basically trying to pay for their third house in Cancun. Well, um, Michael Caine already got that and invented the quote. So, What's the quote? Oh, you know, the Jaws, the revenge. Oh, Jaws 4. That's right. Didn't he do Jaws 4 to buy a house in the Caribbean or somewhere? Yeah, he's like, I haven't seen the film and at all intents I hear it's awful, but I have seen the house that it paid for. Or It's some sort of quote. That's a great line. Crazy. That's brilliant. All right. We're getting towards the end of the awards here. The Stephen Tobolowsky Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy Award, named after the iconic but supporting actor Stephen Tobolowsky, who has appeared in over 260 films and TV shows. Many know him as the insurance salesman Ed Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered, hey, it's that guy, when he appeared uh, on the screen? I'm going to go for Roger Rees. Yes. <laughs> in the press Yes, me too, me too. Who, you know, he was in Star 80. If you've ever seen Star 80, that's yep. a pretty good movie. He basically always in- plays a very uppity British guy with a stick yeah, up his ass. Yeah, that's right. Although he does a Russian version of that in the 
fourth remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Invasion. So, is it a Russian stick up his ass? Yeah, that's right. And he's very memorably in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Okay. So, The Illusionist, I had Eddie Marsden. Yeah. Liam, Miami Vice and The Disappearance of Alice Creed. It is definitely that guy. Where do I know him from? So, if Roger and Eddie are both wearing Speedos wrestling in a inflatable pool full of jelly for this award, mm-hmm. who wins? Well, I think we win in that case. <laughs> oh, we both win. That's right. I'll give it to Eddie. Okay. So Cinema is the winner. Exactly. All right. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. Named after Delroy Lindo, the incredibly talented tall black actor from Get Shorty, Heist, and A Life Less Ordinary. So under the prestige, I had the one... The only, the magician extraordinaire, Ricky J. Well, he's been cast all that he'll ever be cast now. Yeah, unfortunately so. Like, he wasn't cast enough, though, when he was alive, which is why I think he should have been cast more then. Fair. But I just have to savour all of those David Mamet movies he was in. Yeah. I mean, I love him in Boogie Nights. When I, That's actually how I first discovered Ricky <laughs> J, in Boogie Nights. Yeah, Kurt Longjohn. Was he the gaffer? Is he a gaffer? He's definitely not the boom swinger because that's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, maybe maybe he works in the lighting department. I think he's doing lights, yeah. Okay. All right. So, do you give it to Ricky J? Yeah, of course. All right. Moving on. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Who steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? I mean, Eisenheim's not particularly ludicrous. It's just foreign. No. I've actually got... Piper Perabo's real name (laughs) for the prestige. I actually looked up Wikipedia. That was her real name because it just has that. Is it? I guess it's that onomatopoeic. Onomatopoeia. Oh no, no, it's not really. Words that sound like. Yeah, you're right. It's just right. It's just a rhyming name. It sounds like a movie made up name. Like her name was Piper Smith, and she changed it to sound more. Peter Parker. Catchy. Exactly. Yeah. Any superhero that has the same first letter for their surname and their last name. Or it sounds similar like Clark Kent. All right, so Piper wins it by default. The Memento Award named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. So for the prestige, I had forgotten that Piper Perabo was actually in the movie. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I think I've seen this movie so many times that nothing really surprising. And I can't really remember the second time I watched it to be like, oh, yes, of course. So I've got nothing. Okay. I've got nothing. For The Illusionist, I actually had how beautiful the film looks. I'd forgotten that. So I think it's a very striking yeah, we sh- film. We should also say that, and I might have mentioned earlier, the photography and production design in The Illusionist are really, really great. How about we give it to The Illusionist then? Sure. Dick Pope and uh, Andre Nev- Nevisul? I don't know how to pronounce the production designer's name. I'm sorry. No, they did a fantastic job. And I think with that nomination of the Oscar, Dick was at least acknowledged accordingly. All right. The Die Hard Award. Named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday hero who's up against a group of baddies in a single location, like Under Siege. So if imitation is the ultimate flattery... Did either of these movies live a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Well, my answer here was no, unless you perhaps count Now You See Me and those TV shows like featuring Penn and Teller, but they were already around before these films premiered. Yeah, there was definitely not a slew of late 19th century set magician movies 
that tumbled out of Hollywood not but months after these. <laughs> okay, so the answer is no. Last award, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So could you make a sequel to either of these films? So, Gabe, imagine this. You're a studio head, an executive. You run a studio. Okay. And a gun's pressed against your head where you look at your intellectual property, your library, and you've got these films. Let's say it's the same studio that has both The Prestige and The Illusionist. Wow. So- First of all, you've got to make a sequel to one of these films. Which one do you choose? Surely The Prestige offers a more scope or toys to play with, considering is that it has exploitable sci-fi elements rather than The Illusionist, which just has more just regular old magic. All right, boom. So we're going to do a sequel to The Prestige and also trade off the names of Kristen Nolan, and if we recast any of the actors, well, Christian Bale, we can perhaps bring them back. All right, so let's go. Okay. We've got 10 so, minutes so, to do a pitch for The Prestige. So Christopher Nolan's not coming back to direct, but it's maybe Christopher Nolan presents. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like some cheap. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, some cheap ass. So we're building out an entire world, like oh, uh, the, the universe building. Universe. Yeah, sure. okay. So Hugh Jackman... Probably can't come back because he's dead. Spoilers. Although some of his clones could come back, I guess. Ooh, okay. That's do we want to do anything with his clones? Or do we just say that the thing that will carry us forward will be the box, Tesla's box? Okay. Like, has the on. story of Borden and Angier, is that story done and we'll now discover a new story about new magicians and a box, the magic clone uh, box? So it's like the, uh, the red violin where you follow the concept, but introduce new characters. It's like basically- Red Violin. Do you mean the 1998 movie that probably no one knows or remembers? Okay. Let me give you a better example. It's like the third film oh, it's like the, the Fast movie, and Furious. Bucks. Yes. No, it's like the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drip. You take the concept and the branding and the title, or it's like one of those American Pie spin-offs, Right. Like American Pie presents Bandcamp. So we take the invention of the Tesla machine that clones people and we can recast every character and perhaps it falls into the wrong hands and we do a heist film. I mean, you could have, for instance, the prestige was set in them old-timey days. You could have like you could move it to a modern era and it's like a, an estate auction and the lead character, whomever that may be, either buys or is somehow gets their hands on the Tesla clone box. I like it. So we set it in 2019. Yeah. And basically, you know, what, you know what happens? Someone buys it at one of those auctions they have where there's like one of those storage facilities. So rather than being something as glamorous as perhaps a Sotheby's auction where they buy some sort of historical looking cupboard, which is the Tesla device, they actually buy it in some Midwest unromantic- Oh, like in a up What do you call them? The storage facilities, those where you got like the endless crates full of people's like weird shit that they've locked up. Exactly. Like they can't keep it in their house because their wives will find it. Because there's like jars of cut up toenails and human hair and all sorts of weird things. And someone buys this. So is it someone like Mark Wahlberg's character who's 
an ambitious working class inventor from Terminator. No, sorry, <laughs> from Transformers. Wait, Mark Wahlberg played an ambitious working class inventor in a movie? Fuck. Yeah, it was that uh, Transformers spin-off. It's like a parallel wow. universe. I've not seen it, but okay, sure. Mark Wahlberg is playing yet another working class inventor who happens to find himself- No? We want to recast? Step back. What if we have okay. some kids find it and we trade off yes. this whole strangest thing thing with kids and BMXs discovering crazy shit? Okay, so a bunch of kids discover a box as part of a auction or maybe why would kids be bidding on it? Kids can't bid on shit. Kids can't do shit like that. They have to get the box some other Maybe they steals it and they don't know what they've done stolen. So they go and raid a like a lockup, which they think yeah, contains- Yeah, it's all this junk. They're like, which they can think they contains like- there. Perhaps um, like an old bike or something like that or- Yeah, they're looking for nudie mags. Okay. And rather than a nudie mag, they discover an invention Much by Tesla worse. from the first film. A device actually clones human beings. Yeah. So now, like we got like a five main kids or whatever. Now they all start cloning themselves and each other. So what's an you example know? of a reference film where people are cloned that we can- Turn to as a reference, but not imitate, but know to do something different. Dude, multiplicity. <laughs> With Michael Keaton. Genius. Ah, classic. Okay. So, what did Michael Keaton's film do right and wrong besides wacky <laughs> antics? Okay. What it did wrong was being forgotten by everybody. So, you all owe Michael Keaton for turning your backs on multiplicity, people. What did so, it do right? Who knows? No one's ever seen it. So, I guess the positive version of the cloning film is that someone says- Wow, I'm really busy. I have so much to do. Here's an idea. I can split the busyness of my life by having different versions of me do my tax, cook sure. meals, go to the gym, be a loving, caring boyfriend, wife, partner, whatever. What are you talking about? These are teenagers. You clone yourself and go, I wonder what it would be like to fuck myself. <laughs> so it's a sex comedy? Well, it is now. It's like, what is it if you're giving yourself a handjob? If your clone is... Maybe it's an exploration of those ideas. What do you think? No? <laughs> All right. Well, there is actually, this is part of the spin-off world. I think the TV, I think it was, was it the Italian job or was it Ocean's Eleven where James Kahn's son, what's his name? James Kahn Jr. Scott yeah. Kahn. Scott Kahn actually makes a very crude joke about masturbation where he sits on his, until it's numb, and then does the deed and calls it The Stranger. He didn't invent that. That's a classic. No, but he mentions it in the film. So, are we in the same universe? Have we kind of like crossed over into the Ocean's Eleven universe from this film? I feel like your idea of making it a heist film is probably better than a movie about clones having sex with themselves. Let's maybe shift it back into the, the possibilities for a heist movie whereby you can clone yourself. So what about a group of kids? No, let's go back. What if, say, a down-and-out mum who's a divorcee with three kids, she's the mum from E.T., so rather than focusing on the kids in E.T. on BMXs, we focus on the mum that goes to the, the auction, and this is basically her lottery ticket, and she wins it and gets this device, and she thinks, what if I pull off a heist by myself and it's like an Ocean's Eleven film where there are six versions of the mum from E.T. all collaborating on a heist where you have the plan, you've got the person who's the, the driver and the person who does the climbing and the person that wears a disguise. 
but it's the same character. It's the same mum. But the antics ensue because they argue against each other because they all think they know better. But why is it a suburban mum? If we're going to do a, a heist movie where someone gets a device whereby they can replicate themselves, wouldn't it make more sense in that universe to make it about like some kind of like highline robber who like realises that this is the way, like he's, let's say Neil McCauley is sick of these, working with these amateurs like Wayne Grow. And he figures the best thing to do would be to clone himself six times. So you're and saying then- that it just happens to be that Neil McClawley leaves the end of Heist, no, leaves the end of the film Heat, and by sheer coincidence, this perfect criminal robber happens to be turning up on Storage Wars, the reality TV show, and bids for a magical device that clones him. Yes, and then, look, he's not actually... Neil McCauley. He's just a Neil McCauley-like character. I was just using the character from Heat as a... But then the cop realises the only way to bring six perfect replicas of a ultimate criminal down is to clone himself six times. But maybe something goes wrong. Maybe he can only make three of himself. Or maybe maybe he just makes himself too... Oh, so it's called then the Prestige Six. It's like Ocean's Eleven. Get it? I guess I get it. Don't you want someone with a unique set of skills if you're doing a heist thing and then they can be... Although, why are they... They're just going to clone themselves six times. They're not like a team of people whose strengths and weaknesses complement each other. It's just the same person six times. There's no... I don't know. That doesn't seem that exciting. What about the morality around cloning in the prestige? So, you're cloning yourself a bunch and then setting yourself up on a whole variety of suicide missions, like Lemmings versions of yourself. There's some humour in that, but also some deeper questions. I think, what if it falls into the hands of a criminal who may be a robber or some other type of criminal, like drug dealer or whoever, but the danger of cloning yourself six times if you're an evil person or a criminal is you potentially have five other sociopaths who don't want to share the spoils of success. Well, that's good. And so now it becomes almost a serial killer film or a film like The Purge where what starts out as a heist film to profit from this multiplicity situation, then they start hunting each other. Oh, that's good because you do the initial heist and you're like, yeah, great job, guys. And then when you're betrayed, wouldn't the clone who's betrayed you be like, you should have known, I am you. And you're like, oh, but you are. Why didn't I think of that first? And then maybe it turns out you did think of that first. And so basically the first act, you rush to the heist in the first act straight away. And then what happens is one of the clones seduces the girlfriend or wife, getting the alpha or the the real one, the real character annoyed. And then acts two and three become a hunt for survival, where basically you're being outsmarted by someone who's as smart as you. So whatever you think of doing, there's a very good chance they'll think of running, chasing, weaponizing or whatever in exactly the same way as you. As in the ultimate baddie you're up against is a version of yourself who's as smart as you. So it becomes basically, it starts off as a magic film slash sci-fi and then becomes a thriller for the last part. And at the very end, what's the revelation? Is it a case that basically our hero, how's this? Our hero takes down the characters one by one by one, but at the very end realises that actually he's the clone himself. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, is he somehow redeemed or she? Are they somehow redeemed because they start as like a bad guy, are betrayed by themselves, 
are told they shouldn't have been surprised because the person who's betrayed them is in fact them. Does this character have to learn some kind of like lesson about some old bullshit like they like to do in these movies? Or is it just like, well, fuck it, at the end, the twist is they were the clone, but also maybe they were in fact the bad guy and they did the old switcheroo because one wore an earring but the other one didn't. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the lesson is essentially care for what you wish for and uh, you never really know who you are or what you're capable of being because you can change. But just to be clear, there's no magic in this movie. No. We, we took the – we went, oh, I like the prestige. What do you like about it? I like the magic cloning box. What about the magic? Nah, that's played out. Unless this person at start is actually a magician who discovers this. Oh, now we're talking. And then he discovers a way of trying to monetize it. And when he tries to do it, everyone says, oh, that's a pretty lame magic trick. And then he thinks, actually, why waste it on magic when I could actually utilize the six versions of me to rob banks? Yeah, right. That makes more sense. So, I mean, it could even therefore be the great, great, great nephew of Robert or Alfred. And there's an estate auction and it's the last thing that's left. Exactly. And they sort of failed at magic their whole life and now here they are. So what do we call it? Too prestige, too furious? Well, I mean, clearly. Done. (laughs) All right. Start printing money. Yes. I can smell. And if that fails, clone yourselves and steal it. (laughs) Made for a budget of $20 million. Expected box office globally, (laughs) $400. Million. Oh. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) All right. Next film. Okay, mate. I think that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? Just go to Twitter. It's full of insights. And you'd be on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, of course, at Gabe Dowrick. Excellent. I'm Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Twin Movies on all the usual podcast sources like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, etc. And also my other podcast, The Ben Phelps Show. Thanks for listening, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle really soon. Gabe, it's been a pleasure, mate. Until next time. Adios. Thank you.